Hello, hey, oh, excuse me. Let's point Lucy towards Kara Lombard and away from Desi talking to Lana Turner. Also, someone please break that up as well. Okay, welcome to Hollywood Party. I'm glad you made it back. This week we'll be talking about a comedian, turned singer, turned pilot, turned ambassador, turned cook. He's a busy guy. We're getting to know Danny Kay, and clearly we have a lot to cover, so grab a drink and join the party. he was the biggest star, but he definitely glittered in a way that set him apart from the others. Danny was the third boy and the baby of the family. David Daniel Kaminsky was born January 18, 1911 in Brooklyn. He was the only child to be born in America. Everyone else came from Russia or the Ukraine. His dad, Jacob, was a tailor who primarily made corsets, and he was also a cantor. His mom, Clara, taught Danny how to dance and encouraged him to imitate celebrities to entertain their guests. They only spoke Yiddish at home, so he was fluent his whole life. His entire school was first-generation Jewish kids. His first time on stage was in kindergarten in a minstrel show called The Watermelon Fantasy. I am not done. He played a seed, but he stuck out because he had red hair. I know. A minstrel show with all Jewish kids. That's a lot to take in. When he was 12 years old, he got an after-school job at the dentist office of Samuel Fine. He was fired for using the drill to carve designs into a piece of wood. Samuel had a daughter named Sylvia who was extremely smart. She was the class president, assistant editor of the school newspaper, wrote a weekly humor column, <gasps> and she played piano and wrote songs for school plays. Also, she was younger than Danny. So when he was a freshman, she was a junior. Super smart. Students remembered her as snobby or aloof. Look, when you're smart and stuck with a bunch of immature dummies, you're just biding your time until you can get the hell out of high school. I totally get it. Danny's mom died after his bar mitzvah, and his grandma and some cousins moved in because his dad kind of checked out as a parent. He loved Danny for sure, but he just stopped cooking for the family and became very emotionally distant. So yet again, another underwhelming father figure. I think we're like 10 for 13 in this arena. Any psychologists out there want to take a stab at what this means? While in high school, Danny thought it would be really funny to take horse manure and put it on the lap of the Thomas Jefferson statue at school. Not surprisingly, it did not go well. Rather than accept his punishment, he just quit school altogether. He and his pal Lou started performing and called themselves Red and Blackie. They might have been young, but they were good enough to do a show for Murder, Inc., the mafia organization, not the music label. When he was 15, he was hired at White Row Lake House in the Catskills. It was a kind of singles resort. So if you're between 18 and 35 years old, you would be bunking with five to six people in a room and they would provide six meals a day. Okay, so here's the deal with the borscht belt. You know how Lucille Ball was super grateful that she had time to learn all different techniques because she was in Leela Rogers school at RKO? The borscht belt was kind of like that for entertainers. Most 
mostly comedians and singers, or a combination of the two. Danny's mentor there was Fischl Goldfard, whose thing was anecdotal monologues, and he taught Danny how to pretend to conduct classical music. The first real play Danny ever saw, he was actually in. The director said, quote, he was like an idiot savant. No matter what you wanted him to do, no matter how well you told him, he would do it better. Danny had officially changed his name to Kay by this point because one of his brothers had done it first. He was 5 foot 11, 140 pounds, and very charming. He was quite the ladies man. He learned how to dance and he was extremely graceful. When you're tall and thin, you're either graceful or you're like dancing with a daddy long legs. So entertaining the guests meant more than just performing. He had to dance with the ladies, take them rowing, and other things. Hey, it was a singles resort, man. Of course he dated the only shiksa at the resort, Kathleen Young, one of the ballroom dancers who worked there. When the season was over, his partner Lou went back to real life and high school and eventually became a podiatrist. Danny became super depressed in the winter because he went from being somebody to being a nobody. He was also more than likely a little bit like of a manic depressive, so like super high highs and really low lows. At the end of the following summer, he teamed up with Kathleen Young and her dancing partner, and they toured as the Three Terps Accords. They joined a show called La Vie Paris and toured Asia in 1934. Well, they toured east to west across America first, so two shows a day for five months, then they got on a boat to go east. Since Danny only knew Yiddish and English, this is how he really learned that facial expressions were a great way to communicate. He also created his own double talk, which is like made up nonsense that was just funny in any language. On top of all of that, he was excellent in accents, and he would combine the two for maximum effect. A year and a half later, at the end of the tour, Danny was in 16 out of the 21 numbers in the show. In 1936, he went back to the Catskills and he was offered a job as the master of ceremonies at the President Hotel. Now, all of the hotels and resorts were Jewish, but this job focused much more on Yiddish-based entertainment. Because of how great he was, after the season ended, he got a job at Billy Rose's Casa Manana. Billy Rose was married to Fanny Bryce during this time, and no, he did not look like James Caan. Funny Lady really could have been a much better movie than it was. What happened? So Danny had to start from the bottom because Jimmy Durante was the headliner at this club. The club offered dinner, dancing, and a show for $1.51 a person. That is $27 in 2020 money. That's like one and a half drinks at a club today. We're getting ripped off. So one day, Danny goes in to audition for the Sunday night review at Camp Tamament in the Poconos. The review was being put on by Max Liebman, who was a Broadway director. So this had potential to catapult careers into like the stratosphere. Sylvia Fine had been hired to write the songs, 10 new ones a week, and said when Danny walked in, he seemed to dance and every movement had a flash and a flare to it. She totally remembered meeting him when she was 11 years old, but he had no recollection. Typical. We already know Sylvia was a smarty. She graduated high school at 15 years old, then went to Hunter College where she studied music and even taught piano. Her only goal was show business. She didn't care about looking cute or about boys. She just wanted to hustle. So basically she used Danny to express herself and that benefited him because it helped create the kind of career he wanted. She was a writer and he was her muse. Let's face it, most guys are not organized and dedicated. So to have someone sit down and create numbers just for you is amazing. What is interesting is that she wrote a lot of fey numbers for him, and for someone who was a ladies' man in the Catskills, he now was very androgynous on stage. Was this something Sylvia saw in herself? 
because she would have benefited more being a man in show business? Or was this something she saw in Danny? Either way, it was a big success, and Max told them that he was making a show to take to Broadway, and they were both going. The Straw Hat Review opened at the Ambassador Theater, and Danny got brave reviews. It had an 11-week run. That holiday season, Danny and Sylvia were married on January 3rd, 1940. It was a civil ceremony, so she told her parents they were just engaged because they wanted the religious thing. They were broke. Like, Sylvia only had $30 to her name broke, so their honeymoon was looking for an apartment. Their combined goal was making Danny K. So Sylvia got him an agent who got him a job at a nightclub for 250 bucks a week. Their first show was not amazing, but that's okay because the second show was when all the critics and society people came in. This happened at like midnight. So Sylvia had time to tweak the show. By the end of the second performance, Danny got a standing ovation, sang an encore song, led a conga line through the crowd, don't tell Desi, and then pretended to faint just to get off stage. Later that same week, they were remarried in a synagogue and his salary tripled. The word was out about how killer his show was and Ginger Rogers, Robert Young, Barbara Stanwyck, Orson Welles, even Greta Garbo came. After playwright Moss Hart saw the show, he told Danny, well, if I ever write another review, it would only be because you could be in it. He called a few days later to see if Danny was interested. Didn't take long. While Moss got something together, Danny and Sylvia went to work really honing his onstage persona. He was zany and impish, and he used his elegant hands to further help him express his points. Sylvia became his manager, and she got him a publicist. Moss Hart wrote him a part as a femme fashion photographer in Lady in the Dark. The leading lady of the play was Gertrude Lawrence. Danny's big number is called Tchaikovsky. He rattles off composers' names at light speed. Danny said, never measure anything by quantity. I was on 11 minutes. Actually, 38 seconds of it, Tchaikovsky, made my career. The same week Lady in the Dark premiered, Gene Kelly opened Pal Joey down the street, and fun fact, Vivian Vance was in the chorus of Lady in the Dark. So like a lots of super talented people getting their start on the same street at the same time. Similarly to Desi Arnaz, Danny did the play, then he boogied down to the nightclub where he had to pull double duty and do his act. Betty Hutton worked with him at the nightclub while doing Panama Hattie at the same time on the stage. What are these people on? It's gotta be Benzos, right? Like how do you do a full Broadway play then go do a nightclub act? That's an insane amount of energy. Danny had actually lived with Betty's family for a while when he was hard up in between summer seasons of the Catskills, but he refused to acknowledge that or even hang out with her. It's not clear if Danny was snobby naturally or if it was Sylvia rubbing off on him. During this time, Sylvia started doing interviews for Danny. This is a quote from the New York Sun. It is she who writes all his material, words, music, and who works with him, coaches him, and accompanies him at the piano at each performance. She doesn't take any bows, but Kay takes them for her, and he is the first to give her full credit for his meteoric rise. Although everything Sylvia had written for him had been wonderful, Danny was so stubborn about trying new, untested material. He was sick of doing the double talk, so she had whipped up these Gesundheit jokes for him. They were, of course, a smash. They were so damn good that everything Danny Kay is in has a Gesundheit joke. It's like their little inside thing. Moss Hart had failed to sign Danny for the run of the show, so when Cole Porter called and asked, hey, you want to be the lead in one of my new shows? Uh, yeah, Danny said, I do. Sylvia was very business savvy, and in addition to getting Cole Porter to agree to let her write songs for Danny to put in the show, the balls on her, really? She got Danny a salary of $1,000 a week with a percentage of the box office, so altogether,
together, he's making like three grand a week. The show was called Let's Face It, and the two female leads were Eve Arden and Vivian Vance. Danny walked through the rehearsals, not really giving it his all because there's no audience, like who gives a shit? That attitude made the producers super nervous. Mm, it's fine, like the show was a hit, well Danny was definitely a hit, and Sylvia moved them into a duplex on Central Park West. Two months into the show, Danny and Eve Arden were having a major affair. Eve, whose real name was Eunice, she changed her name while looking at her makeup. An evening in Paris was a perfume, and Elizabeth Arden was another makeup line. She was from California and had been acting since she was 16. She came to Broadway to be in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1934. She was never a leading lady on film. She was always the best friend. She was blonde, very pretty, gave deadpan delivery, just like a real bra in the best sense of the word. Her friends said she didn't have a sense of humor offstage, so kind of similar to Lucy. When she met Danny, she was married as well. Sylvia was not gonna let this affair mess with her plans, so she went to California to negotiate with the studios. Our boy Harry Cohen said, Kay looks like a Catskills mountain comic. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Sam Goldwyn was concerned about Danny's nose. And he also said no one would want to fuck Danny Kay. I don't know about that, my guy. Sam's solution to Danny's nose was to bleach his hair and turn him into a blonde. I have never heard of blonde hair making your nose look smaller, and I have my cosmetologist license. Once Sylvia got a five-year contract with Sam Goldwyn, Jose Ferrer took over for Danny on Broadway. The show could not survive without him and closed shortly after. Danny and Eve put their affair on hold while they both moved back to California. The first movie Danny did was called Up in Arms. It was based on The Nervous Wreck, which was the basis of Whoopi. That was for Eddie Cantor. Speaking of him, Goldwyn was trying to make Danny into a new Eddie Cantor and would even call him Eddie sometimes, cause that's not weird. The couple rented Chester Morris's house when they first came out to LA, then upgraded to boxer Slapsy Maxie's home in Bel Air. Mrs. Slapsy sued the Ks for wrecking the house because Sylvia entertained so much. Danny said all he did was take the boxing ring out of the living room. He did not serve in World War II because of a bad back, but like other stars of the time, he entertained the troops and he helped sell war bonds. In 1945, he got the Danny K radio show, which solidified his stardom. He made 16,000 bucks a week, and of course, Sylvia had to approve all of the writers. The one thing she could not control were the guests. And wouldn't you know who was a regular? Eve Arden. Well, Sylvia just took all of her new money and bought them a big-ass house on San Isidro Drive in Beverly Hills. Of course, Billy Haynes decorated the whole damn thing. She was no rube. And yes, the home is still there. I have a link to an Architectural Digest article on it. Obviously, it has since been sold and therefore all the Billy Haynes goodies have been scattered into the wind, but the pictures in the article are from when Danny was there. Since no one could see him on the radio, the writers had to invent a personality for him, which was the unlikely victim. His next movie was The Kid from Brooklyn, and he made sure Eve Arden was in that as well. Damn, subtlety thy name is not Danny Kaye, wow. While at a Hollywood party, obviously not ours, Danny and Eve were standing back to back, talking to two different groups of people. He takes two cigarettes out, lights them both, and hands one over his shoulder to Eve and just keeps talking. Elaine Anderson saw this and she mentioned it to her husband, Zachary Scott, on the way home and they were both very sure. Yeah, they're totally having an affair and not even trying to cover it up. When Eve's husband got back home from World War II, it was not a scene from the best years of our lives. She was like, welcome back, I want a divorce. Danny didn't ask Sylvia for one because she was pregnant. Did she do it to keep him or was it an oopsie? 
Come on. Sylvia is super smart. This was totally a power move. You know what else was? Being on the cover of Time magazine with Danny. The entire story was about the woman behind the man. And they used the old joke that Danny was really starting to hate. He has a fine head on his shoulders. Danny was well aware that he wouldn't be where he was without Sylvia, but he resented the fact that most people thought she made him. Sylvia clearly loved Danny so much that he could do whatever he wanted and she'd turn a blind eye. She got to be Mrs. Danny Kay and have creative control. Had she not re-met up with Danny, she probably would have gone on to become a famous song or playwright on her own merits. Now she was like this weird safety blanket slash mother figure to him. They definitely benefited from one another, but in the words of St. Britney Spears, I'm addicted to you. Don't you know that you're toxic? Okay, let's take a break. I need to go listen to that song and get that out of my system and we'll be right back. Ironically, the next movie Danny makes is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, about a man dominated by many women. In 1947, Variety says his only box office equal is Frank Sinatra. This is before Sinatra's career took a dump, so it's a compliment. Less than nine months after his daughter Dina was born, Danny walked out on Sylvia. Because of that, she refused to work on A Song Is Born, and all reports say Danny was a total basket case to work with on that set. In 1948, he decides to go play the Palladium in London. He had bombed in England the decade before and was super nervous. The week before he began, Mickey Rooney played the theater and tanked so badly that he left early, so no pressure on Danny. In the middle of his first show, Danny just sat down on the apron of the stage, letting his long legs dangle into the orchestra pit, and started chatting with the audience. They ate that up. The then Princess Elizabeth saw him, thought it was amazing, then, for the second time, brought her entire family back. Danny was the first performer King George VI ever requested for a command performance. Danny was also having an affair with Princess Margaret. This is way before the Captain Peter Townsend thing. She must have known that this would not go anywhere. He was married, Jewish, and an actor. I know, now we have Meghan Markle, but at least Danny Kaye was an actual movie star. Where's the lie? Apparently, things were so hot and heavy between them that the royal family had to separate them and sent Margaret to tour the continent before going to some event in the Netherlands months later. While coming back from the UK, the plane Danny was on lost all power at 18,000 feet. Then a propeller flew off and a fire broke out on the wing. Somehow, they made it back to Ireland. And on the way back, Danny was helping keep the passengers calm and serving them drinks. On his new flight home, a guy who had been on the previous hell flight asked him if he'd like to get involved with UNICEF, which is an organization that helps children around the world get the medical care they need. That was the beginning of a really good partnership. Sylvia said that one day, Danny just came home and they reconciled in their own weird way. This totally devastated Eve Arden, but she went on to marry Brooks West, he was an actor, and she had her own TV show, and she won an Emmy, so she's doing all right. Sylvia had negotiated a five-picture deal with Warner Brothers for Danny, but after one picture, he was released from his contract. Jack Warner was super conservative, and the Ks were really liberal, and very vocal about the stupid-ass HUAC investigation. McCarthyism is super boring to me because it was such an epic waste of time and talent. The next film Danny makes is On the Riviera, directed by Walter Lang, Fieldsy's husband. And Danny started another affair with Gwen Verdon. 
She was in the movie, and she was also the assistant to the choreographer, Jack Cole. People referred to him as a sadistic choreographer, and he was also gay. So they were supposedly having an affair. I don't really know how that's possible, but whatever. So at the same time Danny's starting up his thing with Gwen, the gossip rags start reporting that he is gay. Now, this is something I had heard for years. Oh, Danny Kay had a thing with Lawrence Olivier. This is the deal. The Olivier's rented the house next door to the K's while Vivian Lee was filming Streetcar Named Desire. Danny and Larry went to visit Noel Coward, who was super openly gay in Jamaica. Danny loved dressing up in drag, and he would go to costume parties dressed as Kay Thompson, who was a handsome woman, but he would do really good impressions of her. Something also to note is Lawrence Olivier had a lot closer relationship with Spencer Tracy than he did with Danny. And there were no rumors about him and Spencer because Spencer had a manly image and Danny's was asexual. I'm not saying Spencer wasn't gay. He lived in a house on George Cukor's property, but we will get to Spencer, so stay tuned for that. In one of Olivier's biographies, the author said that while in New York, Kay's reunion with Olivier grew so intense that Vivian had a jealous relapse. Danny told a girlfriend later in life, quote, I've never had a homosexual experience in my life. I've had opportunities, but I never did anything about them. There's not enough sources for me to say for sure Danny was even bi. Sure, he played a lot of effeminate characters, or maybe it was just acting, or maybe he was impotent. Someone else had suggested that. But most of the time where there's smoke, there's fire. So this is a real case of, I don't know for sure. Speaking of asexual, Danny got paid $200,000 to do Hans Christian Andersen. The real Hans was probably celibate his entire life, probably bi, and if you read his diaries, he keeps track of how many times he yanks it. Obviously, none of this is in the children's movie that Danny Kaye made. This was Danny's first real musical, and all the songs were done by Frank Lesser, who had just finished doing Guys and Dolls. So Sylvia had nothing to do with music. It was also the sixth biggest film in 1952. This image of Danny as Hans Christian Andersen really helped him because he became the official face of UNICEF. He was like the Pied Piper for kids around the world. The images of him joking around with these little kids is super cute because even if they don't speak English, they love him. He raised more money and brought more awareness to sick children around the world than any other UNICEF ambassador. So suck on that, Audrey Hepburn. He made a film called Assignment Children, where he goes all around the world to see kids who could or did benefit from UNICEF. The Academy gave him a special Oscar just for that. He took the Oscar and flew to London to do some more shows at the Palladium and then started things back up with Princess Margaret. One evening, he's doing his show and he goes backstage and didn't know she was showing up. And so he says, oh, hi, honey. Well, you do not address royalty as honey. And people knew that. The palace publicly denied rumors that they were an item. The palace doesn't do that. They typically stay silent. Because of Danny's relationship, whatever it was, with royalty, he and Sylvia's social status in Hollywood was on par with Edie Goats. Sylvia had met Edie through Jack Benny's wife, Mary Livingston. There was a round table of sorts at the Hillcrest Country Club, the only country club that allowed Jews. When you walked into the dining room, the first table on the right was made up of Jack Benny, George Burns, Milton Burrell, and George Jessel, who was their leader. You were not invited to the table. You belonged there. If you weren't sure if you belonged there, you didn't. Danny could crack Jack Benny up like no one else. Once Danny elbowed Buddy Hackett and said, watch. I'll break Jack up. 
Jack was talking to Milton Berle, and Danny looked at him, simply picked up a matchbook, and lit a match. Jack Benny lost his damn mind. What's interesting about Sylvia's ascent to the top of society was that Danny was less and less available to escort her. After that awful plane trip he had, he learned how to be a pilot and flew himself all around the world. And besides not being available, he was only ever really on in front of the boys at Hillcrest. As the studio system was having their last hurrah, Danny decided to finally give in and do TV. He signed with CBS to do three specials. He did this after getting a new agent who told him he needed management that was less snobby, and that meant cutting the strings to Sylvia. He got a million dollars for each special, but the best one he did was the third one with Lucille Ball. He then agreed to do The Danny Kay Show and made CBS build him a penthouse apartment on top of Studio City in LA. He lived 10 minutes away. This is the same time that Jerry Lewis and Judy Garland were doing shows for CBS. Norman Jewison directed the Danny Kay specials and he did the Judy Garland show. He said that he never saw a studio or network treat talent the way that they had treated Judy Garland. They treated her like ass and those shows are marvelous, like go back and watch them. Yet they're treating Danny Kay like he's the goddamn king of Hollywood. He did win a few Emmys for his show, but he really didn't care about that. The show was canceled after four seasons because his era was coming to a close. The San Francisco Chronicle said, Danny Kay all but abandoned his talents the last third of his career. For some reason, that always troubled me. He walked away from his public and his huge gift. The great ones leave too soon, the mediocre go on forever. He didn't like acting anymore, he was over it. The more over it he became, the more moody and snobby he came off as. He reached the peak of what he could do in his field, so he got into flying, then he got into surgery. He even gave a stitch in an open heart operation in Texas. Then he got really into cooking. His favorite was Chinese food. He had a full restaurant grade Chinese kitchen built in his house. He would have dinners, but they weren't social. They were for dining, totally the opposite of LA because that's a town not really known for actual eating. He would log each guest and what they ate. The dress code was informal, no shoes allowed. Sylvia never came and often would be hosting her own dinner parties upstairs at the same time. LA is also not a town known for being punctual. So if you were late to one of Danny's dinners, he would lock the doors and leave a note that said, you're late, fuck you. He did go back to Broadway for Two by Two, a Yiddish version of Noah's Ark. Catherine Hepburn and Lauren Bacall were on Broadway at the same time, and he made sure to make as much money as they were at $14,000 a week. During this time, he started dating Joanna Simon, an opera singer who also happened to be the daughter of the Simon part of Simon & Schuster Publishing and the sister of Carly Simon. He then had one more affair after that with a middle-class married Jewish lady from the Valley. She had her own cooking center in Tarzana, and Danny had gotten her number from James Beard. She was another lady who left her husband for Danny. And I'm sure you're thinking, what the hell? Danny Kay was all right to look at, but it's kind of moody, so like, what's the appeal? When you look at Danny perform, he is very expressive with his hands. The eye is certainly drawn to their size. You get what I'm throwing down? Danny's last role was in Skokie. A lot of people thought this film helped reconcile his lack of Jewishness. Many people thought he should have embraced that side of himself more. He wanted a career, and when your Jewish boss tells you to be less Jewish, what else are you supposed to do? Like, don't hate the player, hate the game. In the 1980s, the awards start rolling in. 
He got honored by the Kennedy Center, the Academy gave him a Gene Herschelt's Humanitarian Award, but his health was like really in the garbage. He had to get a preventative quadruple bypass, and during that procedure he needed a blood transfusion. It's the early 80s, they're not screening blood yet, so he gets hepatitis C. Like, thank god he didn't get AIDS. This also made him impotent, so no more girlfriends or anything else to report. Two years after Mommy Dearest comes out, Danny and Sylvia had a lawyer write up a document to make sure Dina never wrote a book about them. She went on to Stanford and became a travel writer, but never got married. Gee, I wonder why. Danny passed away on March 3rd, 1987 from a heart attack. There was no funeral and he was cremated. Sylvia wouldn't tell anyone where he was buried. She wanted him all to herself for once. She even left instructions after she died in 1991 to tell no one where they were. Well, they're in Valhalla Cemetery in New York. They're in the foundation of a very nice bench with a bronze artwork on top depicting all of Danny's hobbies. On screen, Danny Kaye is so sweet and charming and lovely to watch. Honestly, when I see Gene Wilder, I see a lot of Danny Kaye in him. But we're not talking about his career, we're talking about him as a person. So would we want to party with Danny Kaye? He wasn't really on at parties and he was very moody. It truly pains me to say no. He's not the same level of jerk as Groucho Marx, our other hard pass, but I just don't think he would be very fun at a party. Let me know if you disagree. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, tell every single person you know Please like and subscribe on Apple Podcast. It's free to do and very nice. Or subscribe on Spotify or Anchor or whatever you're using to listen to us. See you next week. At that noisy